The story takes place in Florida at a retirement community on the coast. It's the only retirement community in Florida. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there are three men who, uh, uh, notwithstanding their age, uh, they, they like to break all the rules. And there happens to be a, an abandoned property that has a functioning swimming pool on it, though. And, and these three dudes, or more than that, they like to sneak in to the pool and swim, no matter if they get caught or not. Well, gentrification happens, right? And uh, they discover that that property has been purchased. And um, so their ability to get into the pool has now been limited. And, but they keep their eyes on the people that bought it. And it's, it's this small uh, crew of fishermen who, oddly enough, go out every day. And then they come back to shore with these huge stones, which they then deposit very carefully in this swimming pool. And the older men at the retirement community, they, they still find a way to kind of sneak in and they get in the water and, and they discover that every time they swim, now with those stones in there, they feel rejuvenated like it's a fountain of youth or something. And they're wondering, what is this all about? And, and so one day they're swimming and then they don't realize that the fisher crew is about to show back up. And so in this scene that you're about to see from a 1985 film by Steven Spielberg called Cocoon, they have to hide uh, lest they be caught by those who now own the pool. And they discover that this crew of fishermen are more than what they appear. Apparently they're not from around here. <laughs> sure enough, they are creatures from another planet who 10,000 years earlier had to deposit their friends in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean to protect them until they could come back at find enough time and, and to retrieve them and bring them home. And so that's what they've come to do. They're on a rescue mission but they've come to clothe themselves in humanity, if you will, in order to do something right for those whom they love. And in that moment, they have come to give these aged men in a retirement home a glimpse of their true reality. That's who they are. We're at this point, as we said at the top of our worship, in which Jesus is out to disclose to us that he has more than just wisdom to share he is more than just power to heal or to forgive. There is something more he's out to do. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, he has not so much something to instruct his disciples in as to reveal something about himself. He has come to give them glimpses. Glimpses of things and truths that are meant to have an effect. And the glimpses he's out to give them is the glimpses he's out to give us today again. And that's what we want to take stock of today, what he is out to give a glimpse of. Three things. His nature, and with it, the future, and with the two of those together, what nurtures. His nature, the future, what nurtures. We're at the weirdest, wildest moment thus far in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9. I wonder if you might focus your attention and stand. We'll be in verse 1. Our central text for today is found in Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, then you will remember that Jesus was out to give his disciples a, a corrective lens. They see him in part. They needed to see him more in full and Now they're going to see him in even a fuller way than they had before. But if you were here last week, you may remember that to to follow him is is to love him, obviously, but that love entails what he would term as self-denial, what he would term as taking up your cross, which we tried to argue is just what love does. There is no love apart from forgetting yourself for the good of another. There is no love apart from being willing to, to be shamed for your association with somebody who is being shamed. It's just what love does. It's just love in different terms. And where that chapter or that text ended last week is where we begin this week. And so you hear there in verse 1, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And everybody in that moment who probably heard that was like, What? When is, what is that? When is that going to happen? Well, fortunately, it was only six days later. Sometimes the promises he makes are kind of like, eventually, this one, fulfillment within six days. And so what does he do? He takes sort of the three that he prefers to take for any number of reasons into the sort of special moments, the more hallowed moments. He takes Peter, he takes James, he takes John, and he takes them up a mountain. He wants to show them something. He wants to reveal something to them. He wants to disclose something to them. He wants to give them a glimpse of something, a glimpse of his nature that's out to affect them. When my kids were younger, we found ourselves in Houston, which is my hometown, and we finally visited the place that I would go to every time I could, and that was NASA. I was one of those space geeks. I did the model rocket thing. I went to space camp in Alabama. I mean, the whole nine yards, right? And we would, they, by virtue of um, their unfortunate uh, entrance into our family, saw their share of launches or or replays of real launches, but always on a television screen about that big, right? Well, on that day, we took them to NASA, and you pull up on the tram to the warehouse where they house the Saturn V, and then you walk in the door, and the kids see that, and they, like that. What they had seen in miniature was now on full display to them, and finally they could have a sense of the scale of it. The immensity, the scope of the thing that actually found its way off terra firma into orbit. And that pronounced in them something that didn't have to be taught. It was a sense of awe. What Jesus has come to do 
for Peter and James and John there on top of the mountain is to disclose to them a sense of his nature that's out to bring them awe. And that nature he's out to disclose kind of in three directions. The first one is beyond his wisdom. It's beyond his power. He's out to show them a glimpse of the glory of his divinity. That he has, like those figures in Cocoon, had, their, had part of who he was hidden in his humanity. It was concealed by all the things that he shared in common with us. And he was there to show them, I am more than what you might imagine. I have shown you something, now I mean to show you more. And it's why we read the passage earlier in the service from Exodus 33. Moses is asking the Lord, okay, you've told us to go into the land, we're going to need help. Who's going to go with us? The Lord says, I'll go with you. And Moses says, okay, fine, but would you show me your glory? Can I see the fullness of who you are? I guess to say, can I see your ID? Something to that effect. And the Lord says, look, I'll do this for you. I'll show you my goodness. I'll do that for you to confirm to you the validity of my promise to you. But if I show you my whole glory, you're dead. You can't be in the fullness of my presence, whatever that might mean. I, as I've used the illustration before, I would love to be at a launch in Florida sometime, and I would love to see it from about two miles away. I would not like to see it about 200 yards away. I would be in the presence of its glory, but I don't want to get too close, otherwise that'll be the last time. Whatever God is, whoever he is, and whatever the fullness of that glory is, you don't want to get too close. And so God shows him a part of himself, and whatever that part was, it was brilliant. And it was enough for Moses. Jesus has come to show us his glory. Peter, just earlier in the passage last week, has said to Jesus when he asked them, who do, they say, who do you say that I am? And Jesus steps up. You are the Christ. You are furnished. You are sent. You are clearly well endowed to do the Lord's bidding. And Jesus is there to say, yes, but it's more. I'm here to show the glory of my divinity. Glory is that kavod, it's the, it's the Hebrew word kavod, it means weightiness. It's the word gravitas, it's the, it's the fullness of who I am. And that is something that we all have to reckon with. But alongside us seeing the glory of his divinity, he's also out to show us a second thing in that. And it, and it comes at a point in which Jesus has shown the fullness of who he is, the brilliance of who he is, his, his clothes bleached whiter than anyone has ever seen it, and then what happens? Up, up, who, who shows up? Moses and Elijah. What's that about? These are the heavy hitters. Moses is the one that leads Israel out of the wilderness. Elijah is the one who discloses God's presence like no one has. He's the one that heals people. He's the one that feeds a woman who has nothing. He's the one that confronts kings in their sin. He's the one that's persecuted by Jezebel. The whole storyline of Elijah, the whole storyline of Moses, it's there in their presence. And Jesus is there with them. And Peter has no idea what this moment means. He is absolutely confused. There it says in the text, Mark says, he doesn't know what to say. Peter is in that moment like an American watching a semifinal round of Olympic curling. <laughs> what is this? What, what are they doing? In that moment, Peter has no idea what to make of it. And, which means 
what he offers, what he ventures, is all the more curious to us. He says, hey, let me set up three tents. And you're all thinking, they like to camp. Yes, actually. What is that all about? If you, if you have any familiarity with the book of Leviticus, you know that in the book of Leviticus, there are several feasts that are prescribed on a regular basis. We dig this community. We like that idea. Pres- prescribed feasts. My son would love that. One of those feasts that is prescribed every year is the Feast of Tabernacles, or otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. And every year in Israel, during the Feast of Booths, everybody gathers outside the city and they put up these little booths. They're almost like tents and, and lean-tos and stuff like that. And you dwell in booths for a week. It's like this huge block party where everybody sets up a booth. What is it out to signify? When Israel was in the wilderness, they set up booths. And in that moment, they remember that God protected them when they were exposed, when they were vulnerable. And that, and that celebration came to be known as something more than just remembering their past. It also became something that was anticipatory of a future time when God would sen- genuinely rescue and restore Israel to its former glory. It had had that idea begin to accrue with what it meant to celebrate this feast. So when Peter sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah all in the same place, he's thinking, ha ha, finally, the moment of deliverance, it's here. We should set up booths. Exciting. And in that moment, what happens? He says, teacher, what does this mean? In that moment, what Jesus is out to disclose to them and also in turn to us, is not just the glory of his divinity, but also the scope of his authority. Moses, Elijah, you mentioned their name. That's authority. We listen to them. We revere them. We read their words. We remember their actions. Here's the moment where Jesus is out to say, I am in league with them, and yet I am more than them. I am part of the same storyline. I am part of the same world. I am part of the same future. But look, Jesus is the only one whose appearance was transfigured into this brilliant, radiant white. Moses and Elijah, they just show up. It's just two dudes. Here's Jesus looking pretty bright. And everybody else disappears, Jesus remains. So in that moment, the scope of his authority is meant to say this. He is in league with Moses and Elijah, but he is more. The glory of his divinity, the scope of his authority. I know we're getting in the weeds here. Hang with me. I promise this will... This will There'll be a payoff to this, okay? I'm just working through the passage. Sue me. There's a third thing that Jesus is out to reveal in this moment about his nature. Not only that there's divinity a part of him, not only that he has authority, but something else. And that all happens when what happens next? They're all there. Peter is knocking in the tent stakes, waiting for something to happen. Go start a fire. Cloud descends. Voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, spoiler alert, that's the voice of God. And it's the same kind of moment in which the disciples were not around earlier in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus is baptized. And a voice from the heavens say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here, it's just same song, second verse, but this time for the sake of the disciples. Why is that important? Because for that voice from heaven to say, this is my beloved son, God says that of no one else. Now he will speak of those who follow him as his servants. Jesus himself will refer to himself as the servant of the Lord. But 
God never addresses one particular individual in personal as one who is his beloved son. God does refer to Israel collectively as a son. But in this moment, God addresses Jesus particularly as his beloved son. Listen to him. We see his divinity. We grapple with his authority. But we're also coming to understand the nature of his community. That he is a son to his father. The same father as the God of Israel. What is that, those, those three elements of his nature, what, what is the intended effect? What are we to understand by him disclosing that to Peter, James, and John, and, and then by intention to us as well? Around the same time that Cocoon is released, uh, Peter Weir does his version of the life of Mozart called Amadeus. And if you know that storyline, it's sort of a legendary retelling of a true story of Salieri, who was a, 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 composition, a composer himself who was a contemporary of Mozart. And in this story, Salieri is both astonished by Mozart's skill, but also deeply envious and angry at God that he would have given one who seems to be so flippant and arrogant and body in his language, that God would have given him those gifts and not to Salieri, who has always promised himself to be a servant of the Lord. Well, I want to show you a scene in which Mozart's wife, their family is in need of money. Times are tough for artists, right? And she has come to Salieri, who has friends in high places, and she has come and brought some of her husband's compositions, thinking that she might be able to uh, sell them and, and get some money from that. And so she approaches Salieri. She has no idea that Salieri secretly envies and despises her husband. But in this moment, Salieri receives these compositions and it's a moment that he has to reckon with what he really is in the presence of. These... Are originals? Mm-hmm. Astounding. It was actually, it was beyond belief. first and only drafts of music. But they showed no corrections of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. And music finished as no music is ever finished. to me that sound I had heard in the Archbishop's palace had been no accident here again was the very voice of God I was staring through the cage of those meticulous ink strokes at an absolute beauty 
it is miraculous. That's why they make film. He doesn't know what to feeling to indulge more, his, his envy of one who has so gifted in ways that he is not, or to revel in the beauty of what he is hearing in first drafts. But in that moment, he is captivated. He is captivated by something that is beyond him and beyond, in his mind, humanity. It is miraculous. What Jesus is out to disclose and gives just a glimpse of to them and then also to us is a glimpse of his beauty. Friends, as we said at the beginning of our worship service, your sin, your sickness, your sorrows, they will swallow you unless you're captivated by something else. And he is out to disclose to us his beauty that that might hold us more than all else. Ms. Kayuta, who has shared with us her work, if ma'am, if you are here, she has come to share with us her work, her art, but she is out to show us that beauty is hidden in plain sight, that there is wonder all around us, and we miss it. And that's why we need, we need artists who are just visual poets to remind us of the things that are all around us, to see its beauty. My favorite novel is C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. And Psyche tells her sister at one point to explain why she has sacrificed herself in so profound ways. She says this, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain to find the place where all the beauty came from. That's why Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top. And that's why he's given us a glimpse of it too, to show us where all the beauty came from. And that just by giving, being given a glimpse of his nature. What's that for? As if that's not enough. It's out to show us a glimpse not only of his nature, it's out to show us a glimpse of the future. Look, you and I are really sometimes good and sometimes bad about misjudging somebody the first time we see them. We make all sorts of assumptions about them. Ugh, right? And then there are other times where you pick up on something really intuitive. They, they hit the room and they've come to help out and lead and, and, and somehow this feeling washes over you that when you see them hit the room, you think it's going to be okay. For Jesus to show up as he does, the nature that he has, he is out to give them and us a feel of the future. And not just his future, but ours. And, and not just a more distant future, but one nearer term. And so let me, let me break that sense of the future down into those little elements, if I can. They have had the moment on the mountain, and now they're descending. The cloud has ascended. The brilliance has worn off. Moses and Elijah have um, packed up and headed out. And uh, Jesus walks down with Peter, James, and John. And he says, hey, keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. What? Don't tell anybody until after I'm risen. And Peter, James, and John kind of have this head-scratching moment, not because Jesus is speaking in, in, in um, like his parables, right, where he's meant to conceal something. They're, they're stuck on a little piece of data that they've been hearing from the um, religious elite of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, who have studied the law and studied uh, Israelite redemptive history for a long time, they're, they're a little stumped on something. They, they come back to Jesus and say, no, wait a minute. We've heard, we've come to believe 
that in Israel's storyline, there will be a resurrection, but kind of like in the future, kind of one big final resurrection that has everybody involved and not just one person, even you. But at the same time, we've also heard that at, before that final resurrection happens, Elijah's going to show up and everything great is going to happen. He's going to bring everybody to faith and repentance. He's going he's to, as it says in Malachi 4, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the, church, the hearts of their children to their father. Well, you know, we just saw Elijah, and, and far be it from us not to be thankful for having that vision, but as far as we know, Elijah just kind of showed up for the party and then, you know, took his party favors and left. We don't see any kind of massive worldwide change, but now you're saying that the resur- there's going to be a resurrection before Elijah comes. And Jesus says, chill, you're not wrong, spot on, work with me. Jesus said to them, Elijah's been here. You just didn't know it. Elijah came to be a messenger. Well, guess what? A messenger has come. And in Elijah's storyline, there was plenty of harassment. And as he says there at the end of our passage, and they did with him whatever they pleased, meaning they, they toyed with him like he was prey in the midst of a predator. He's been here. He's done his work. What? Who? When? Did we miss it? We've been here the whole time. Elijah's been here in John the Baptist. He came to announce, as a messenger, the coming of the day of the Lord. It's here. And like Elijah in that earlier day had suffered harassment and suffering of a certain kind, but with a limit, now Elijah has come again, but suffered in fullness. They took his life. So the scribes, the Pharisees, they're right. Nothing's lost. The storyline has not changed. The expectation is in place. But what has happened to Elijah is now going to happen to me. I will suffer. I will die. I will rise. That's my plan. That's my immediate future. But what is the transfiguration really out to point us to? Jesus' resurrection? No. It's out to point us to something greater and grander. It's out to point us to the moment in which Jesus' true glory of divinity and scope of his authority and the context of his community are seen not just as a glimpse but with an enduring reality when what was on display for just a moment will be on display forever that's his path he will suffer he will die he will rise and then in some eventual future you will see the fullness of that glory forever yes and as impressive as that might be as however that might kindle something powerful in us, what does that mean for us? Specifically, this. That those who place their faith in Jesus will be bound up with the same path as Jesus himself will. That just as he, to fulfill his mission, will suffer, will die, and will rise, so all of those who are bound with him by faith in him will follow a similar path. Not to the same degree, not for the same persons, purposes, but all for the same good. And that's why we remember last week. To love him is to follow him. To follow him is to keep his commandments. And to keep his commandments is to have to set aside yourself and have to be willingness to be shamed even because he has been shamed and to not flinch from identifying with him in that shame. His future is your future.
both immediate and eventual. It will cost you to follow him. But as you hear Paul tell Timothy, and Paul tell the church at Rome, and Paul tell the church in Corinth, if we endure with him, we shall reign with him. And then as he tells us the church in Rome, for the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then a few verses later, those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. That's the future. His, ours. He discloses his nature that we might see the future such that if we look at him, we might have reason to say unto ourselves, if not accept the whisper from the Spirit, it's going to be okay. He's shown us a glimpse of his nature for the purpose of showing us a glimpse of the future. But I think where this whole storyline and this passage lands is how that's supposed to give us a glimpse of what nurtures. And this is not complicated. Every, every passage invites us to consider not just what is it teaching, but, but how we respond to it. And, and it's not, you don't have to go far. All you have to do is go back to what the Lord says of his beloved son there in verse 7. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Uh, don't raise your hand, but uh, you ever had a, a teacher or a friend or a spouse say to you, would you listen to me with your face? You know, they're not being rude. They're not being crass. They just get this sense that you might be within earshot and uh, you might not be talking, but there is in no sense that they're really confident that you are listening at all. And Lord knows, uh, two years of using Zoom, as I read over the weekend, you know what that's done to us? It's taught us to give very low attention to those who are speaking. I mean, they see our faces, but you know, you can tell. <laughs> I'm watching a podcast over the weekend. The, the host asks the guest a question, the guest goes on this long discussion, and the host is clearly not listening. They're doing something else, whether it's of a technical nature or they're checking their email. And you, if the guest, you're kind of wanting to say, hey man, you want me to stop until you're ready to focus? Could you listen to me with your face? I know you kids that went through remote learning, you're always locked in, right? Always, always locked in, right? I can tell. Listen to me with your face. When the Lord says to Peter, James, and John, and, and by default to us all, when he says listen to him, he is saying to us, listen to him with your face. In other words, there's listening and then there's listening to him with your face. And when you hear somebody say that to you, you, you know they don't mean that they need to split out for you like for a bullet plan action for what it means to listen to them with your face. You understand intuitively. That means you put it down, you unplug it, you, you look at them, you're very attentive to that, and you're probably going to be responsive to that. And I think the Lord is saying that to me and to you to ask us the question, are you, are you listening to him with your face? Because if, if you and I are going to appreciate his beauty or have gratitude for all the things in his love for us or even 
to be able to find strength in the struggle to follow him, all of those things will require that we listen to him with our face. And I would say in the same way that if somebody says that to you, they don't want you just to sit there and, and, and after they're done, just to sit there and be quiet. They're probably going to want you to say something in return. I think what keeps us honest about whether we're listening to him with our face is whether it ever provokes any words from us to him. Eugene Peterson put it this way. It makes all the difference in the world whether God is in the first place or the second. Prayer is the place where the priorities are reestablished. Our reason for listening to him with our face or talking to him with our stammering words, it, it has to be more than just trying to avoid the guilt of not doing so. For, for me, it has to be more than just trying to use this text as a tool to prepare a sermon. I have to listen with my face, and often I fail because things are more important to me and ideas and notions and things going on in the world are all such more captivating. And it's because I really think that the way things are right now, well, how they'll always be. How shall I remind all of us of this truth? Things as they are will not always be as they are. And you and I will have to learn how to listen with our faith, one way or another. But when you listen to him with his face, with your faith, there's actually an objective you listen to him with your face until you see in him the marks of grace. And by that I mean this. Paul is the, I mean, sorry, Peter is the overachiever. He's always the first to get it, the first to pronounce his, his courage, his wherewithal, his promise to suffer and die with Jesus whenever he says. But look, having seen what he just saw, you realize that it's in a matter of weeks that Peter will act as if he had never even been there. Three times he'll have the opportunity to say, I'm with him. And three times he will in effect say, Jesus? Jesus who? Having seen what he saw, he acts as if he'd never seen it. As Pitiful as that might be, it should be an encouragement to us all. Because us having not seen as Peter saw, I think we are susceptible to the same predicament. That whatever wonder or awe you might feel in this moment, in this setting, by these words, tomorrow, you might be tempted to think, ah. But what is Jesus, what's in Jesus' face even after Peter has denied him in his darkest hour? On a beach, Broiling fish on a charcoal fire. In Jesus' face, Peter hears a question. Do you love me? And not because Jesus doesn't know. But he's just trying to remind Peter that Jesus loves Peter. When you listen to Jesus with his face, at some point you will see in him the marks of grace. And that's the point. That's the glimpse we all have to get and recover. That's what it means to walk in faith. So help me out. Let me end this with a, with a chorus from a Rich Mullins song. If you know it, sing it with me. 
If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will hold me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as man who is longing for his home. Let's pray. If we saw you as you were, we might stand more in awe. You might see the things that so captivate us (laughs) astonishingly and wonder why we give so much attention to it. So I thank you that you tell us to meet often, to be reminded of what is greater than all the things that we thought this week were greater than you. So whatever it might mean for us to learn to listen with our face, I ask that you would show us what that looks like. And that whatever we bring into this room that we need help for you to carry, that we might believe again that you are. Please, Jesus, by your spirit, amen.